Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I started out looking at every Prime Minister in Canadian history, and we're right in the middle of every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, but we took a break from that, because an election was called. So right now I'm doing 36 election episodes in a row, to coincide with our 36 day election period. If you want to support the podcast, you can, for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Wednesday and Saturday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I do all of these full-time. The writing, the research, everything. I do it every day, all day. And it's a lot of work. So, any dollars you give help keep it all going, and I'll make sure to thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. After the stunning landslide for Diefenbaker in 1958, it had been a long four years for the Prime Minister. Over those years, he had seen his popularity drop over the issues such as the nuclear weapons in Canada and the Avro Arrow cancellation. There were good moments for many during those years, though. Ethan Baker gave the vote to the Indigenous and Inuit voters, he appointed the first Indigenous person to the Senate, and he would appoint the first woman to a cabinet post as well. The Trans-Canada Highway was finished, mostly, as was the St. Lawrence Seaway. But most importantly, he brought in the Canadian Bill of Rights. forthcoming federal election, all Indians of voting age will be entitled to vote for the first time in Canadian history. This has created the need for a new type of campaigning. Tom Gould reports. This will be the first federal election in Canadian history in which the native Indian population has been fully enfranchised. A law giving reservation Indians the vote was passed by the last parliament. And now, for the first time, federal politicians are heading into the reserves in their quest for votes. In some writings, this new vote could be a decisive factor, and all parties are diligently wooing the Indian voters. The Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, Mrs. Fertlow, whose department is responsible for Indian affairs, has toured some B.C. reserves. And the Liberal Party is sending its Indian affairs critic, Niagara Falls MP Judy Lamarche, on a swing through reservations up the coast. Experienced political organizers here say they fear some Indian bands will vote as a block, since many Indians lack a rudimentary knowledge of Canadian politics. Indian spokesmen are divided on the subject of the franchise. A number say it will be a helpful lever in obtaining better conditions, and others say it is just another white man's trick and will lead to the weakening of the rights of treaty Indians. For both sides, the Indians and the politicians, a new experience. This is Tom Gould reporting in Vancouver. Even with those good moments, it was going to be an uphill climb for Diefenbaker to replicate his success from 1958. The economy was hurting, the Canadian dollar was declining, and the progressive conservatives attempted to defend the declining dollar by pointing out there were benefits such as the tourism industry, employment, manufacturing and farming, and exports, while denying that it impacted the cost of food and gasoline. In one speech in the Maritimes, Stephen Baker made it seem as if the devaluation of the dollar to 92.5 cents was planned. He would state, quote, My brother Elmer was in New York the day we did it. He was told three times what a marvelous thing this would be for the tourist trade, end quote. 
In response to the fall of the dollar, opponents of Diefenbaker began to hand out Diefen dollars, which featured the image of Diefenbaker and others, and it was valued at 92.5 cents. Diefenbaker had seen his personal popularity fall as well. McLean's would relate this in terms of his relationship with the press gallery, stating, quote, The marked deterioration of the Prime Minister's personal popularity with many reporters in the parliamentary press gallery is in sharp contrast to the 1957 and 1958 campaigns, when it seemed that most Ottawa correspondents regarded John Diefenbaker not so much as the Conservative candidate, but as their personal idol. End quote. When Parliament was dissolved on June 18, 1962, one reporter described the previous parliamentary term as, quote, sometimes aimless, often ill-tempered, and always potentially explosive, end quote. During the campaign, the Liberals campaigned on the slogan of Take a Stand for Tomorrow, while putting forth the image of Diefenbaker as the leader of a feeble government. Lester B. Pearson campaigned on the pledge that he would help cure the worst of the unemployment problem for Canadians. Tom Kent, chief policy advisor for Pearson, would state, quote, What we're trying to do is to create a sense of missed opportunities under the Tories. The point we're trying to get across is that we'll make things better. The Tories won't. This is quite different from just saying the Tories make things worse. End quote. Diefenbaker would fire back at the slogan, stating in a rally that it was like the line from Macbeth, stating, quote, Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. End quote. It was also known that during the campaign, due to his dislike of Diefenbaker, President John F. Kennedy was helping Pearson with electoral agents in the election. He also invited Pearson to attend a White House dinner during the election campaign, along with 49 other Nobel Prize winners. The Conservative campaign was quite different from the one four years previous. The Globe and Mail would state, quote, The Conservative campaign has been essentially a one-man show with Mr. Diefenbaker, the man. If they fail to win, he must take the blame. If they do win, he can claim the victory, no matter how many seats they lose for his own. End quote. The campaign attempted to focus on some of the achievements of the previous term, but those often fell on deaf ears. Diefenbaker's main message was that he was already Prime Minister, and he kept most of the promises he had made from the previous election. Unlike the previous elections, his campaign was low-key, with no large promises. He would attack Pearson heavily in the election, as well as the American press, the Liberal Party backrooms, communists, and Bay Street bankers. Diefenbaker attempted to appeal to new immigrants as well, by stating that he had fought against the Soviets in the United Nations. In Montreal, he would state, quote, I told Mr. Khrushchev, give the Ukrainians the vote, and then he got mad, and that's where he took off his shoe. You remember? End quote. It did not take reporters long to point out that the shoe-pounding incident at the United Nations came 16 days after Diefenbaker made a speech there, and Khrushchev was not even in the hall when Diefenbaker made a speech. Diefenbaker then stated he never made the claim, and called the Toronto Star, who reported on the discrepancy, outrageous fabrication. Many in the country were finding themselves disenchanted with federal politics as well. One political insider in Ottawa would state, quote, There's so much disenchantment with federal politics in Canada these days, that anybody who could put together the anti-Diefenbaker, anti-Pearson, and anti-Douglas votes would sweep the country. End quote. The number of undecided voters was also on the rise, reaching 33%, which was a rise of 10% over just the previous year. The election was notable for several reasons. One was the aforementioned Indigenous and Inuit who could now vote, and there was also the creation of a new party, the New Democratic Party, 
led by former Premier of Saskatchewan, Tommy Douglas. I remember being introduced in the last federal election in a town in Saskatchewan. There were six speakers on the program, and uh, the chairman, who was a high school principal and was a very methodical individual, knowing that the meeting was going to be broadcast, had put what he was going to say about each speaker on a little card. And as each speaker was called, he read out what he was going to say about him. I was the last speaker. He had on the card for me, I now give you the highlight speaker of the evening. But this time he was getting really excited and tongue-tied. He said, I now give you the half-lit speaker of the evening. <laughs> That's a pretty... <laughs> That's a pretty queer introduction for a teetotaler. <laughs> well, I'm most happy to be here tonight to see this marvelous gathering and this enthusiastic group and to have the privilege of launching your campaign here in Halifax. You know, over the years, I've had many pleasant duties. During the period, almost 18 years, that I was Premier of Saskatchewan, I think I performed almost every kind of public function you can imagine. I opened schools and bridges and hospitals, cut ribbons on roads. I uh, welcomed conventions of moose and elks and lions and all the other animals that hold conventions. <laughs> I was a judge at a baby contest. I was even invited to be a judge at a bathing beauty contest. I looked forward to that until my wife heard about it. <laughs> she said nothing doing. <laughs> Another interesting fact of this election is that the entire landmass of Canada was covered by federal electoral districts, something that had never happened in the history of Canada to that point. Pearson quickly found himself more popular this time around as well. At one rally in Winnipeg, the crowd cheered him at least once a minute, and it was at that rally that he thought he may just win the election. Stephen Baker still packed in supporters, though, including at a huge rally in Vancouver. But then other rallies were not as successful. One in Edmonton was poorly attended with a small crowd. One reporter would say that the Diefen bubble had burst in Edmonton, which apparently infuriated the Prime Minister. One conservative supporter in Carleton, Ontario would state, quote, I'll let you in on a secret. I've voted Conservative all my life, but I just couldn't do it this time." End quote. On May 30, 1962, Conservative supporters and unemployed demonstrators began to clash, and Diefenbaker supporters attempted to take banners away from the demonstrators, who numbered about 200 at a rally in Vancouver. Scattered fights began to break out, and one man had to be treated at the first aid center. The commissionaire was knocked down when demonstrators burst in through a fire escape, and he was sent home for medical treatment. Demonstrators chanted, Down with John and we want jobs, and lobbied boos and insults at Diefenbaker. From the beginning, it was impossible to hear the speech of Diefenbaker over the loudspeakers, and the crowd of 9,000 were more interested in the fighting going on than in listening. Diefenbaker would continue to talk for 70 minutes, nonetheless, even as he dealt with chants and boos. And at the end of his speech, he would say, quote, Now we begin to see what would happen if the leaders of these people were in power. They would throttle, they would deny, they would refuse each and every one of us the right to speech." Quote. Bill Galt of the Vancouver Sun would write, quote, 
I've watched political meetings from coast to coast during this election campaign, and I have never seen anything even approaching the chaos of the forum. End quote. All party leaders would condemn the demonstrators. At another rally by Diefenbaker in Trail, BC, five women disrobed while the Prime Minister was talking, and although he was momentarily caught off guard, he recovered quickly as the women were escorted out. Near Sudbury in June, another rally would descend into a small riot for Diefenbaker, and the local Progressive Conservative candidate, Donald Gillis, would blame the Liberals, stating, quote, We were warned several days ago that the Liberals had held a meeting to plan this disruption. End quote. In a poll done five days before the election, it was found the Liberals were ahead 38%, while the Conservatives were at 36%. In the June 18, 1962 election, the Progressive Conservatives would lose 89 seats, falling to 116 and still ruling, but only a minority government. Pearson and the Liberals gained 49 seats, rising to 99, while the NDP gained 10 seats to finish with 19. The collapse of the Conservatives was the worst since the 1935 collapse of the R.B. Bennett government. Diefenbaker also lost an astounding 17% of the popular vote. The election saw 1,918 candidates looking to win a seat in the House of Commons, which was the largest number ever in Canadian history to that point. The Social Credit Party would rebound heavily, winning 30 seats after winning none in 1958. The surprise was that few of these seats came in Alberta, but instead came in Quebec. There were several reasons for this. One was that Diefenbaker had a poor grasp of French, which hurt the party's ability to communicate to Francophone voters. Many Quebec voters had also not returned to the Liberals either, leaving the Social Credit as their new party. Standing by is the national leader of the Social Credit Party, Mr. Robert Thompson. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert N. Thompson. Mesdames et Messieurs, Monsieur Robert Thompson. It is indeed interesting to see what has happened in our election tonight. It is a serious business that we're in today. Canada faces a financial crisis. And I believe that the story of social credit as we have presented it across the country and will continue to do so in a positive way provides the answer to the stalemate that we are in. No longer can we go along with these outdated policies that are designed to preserve a political machine rather than to bring Canada out of where she is today in a very serious economic condition. Douglas had been a very popular premier in Saskatchewan, so many were surprised when the NDP was shut out of the province completely. It is likely this happened because of the introduction of Medicare into the province that caused some chaos and a doctor's strike. Douglas lost his election bid, but he would win in a by-election. And while the Medicare scheme had some problems initially in the province, it would eventually become part of the fabric of Canada as universal health care. The Progressive Conservatives would win every seat in Prince Edward Island and Alberta, while taking the majority of seats in Saskatchewan, Manitoba and Nova Scotia. The Liberals surprised many by winning 43 seats in Ontario, compared to the 35 won by the Progressive Conservatives. Quebec was split heavily, with 20 seats going to the Social Credit Party, 35 going to the Liberals, and 14 going to the Progressive Conservatives. Stephen Baker would cite the minority governments of 1921 and 1926 for the Liberals, in which William Lyon Mackenzie King was still able to bring in legislation, and he added, quote, I simply mention these things by way of interesting analogies. On the basis of the national returns, I simply say this. We are still the government of Canada. My friends, I want to tell you how deeply grateful to each and every one of you for the wonderful support you gave me in the constituency of Prince Albert. End quote. 
Yes, we have just been told that Mr. Diefenbaker is ready, so we take you now to CKBI-TV in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. May I say this at this time, that while I am disappointed at the fact uh, that the government has not an overall majority, nonetheless, the present situation is not without precedent. To my colleagues who met defeat, my regrets to all, my best wishes for after all, elections under our system are the embodiment and the essence of democracy. What happened today is simply the people speaking. That's what democracy is, and it being democracy, let us uphold it strongly. The Conservatives may have won the election, but it was a devastating win for them. Along with losing their support in Atlantic Canada, rural Quebec, and urban Ontario, as well as British Columbia, the party also lost five cabinet ministers. Following the election, Diefenbaker spent several weeks in seclusion before bringing back Parliament in the autumn. Despite the election loss, many saw the Liberals as winning, as they would not have to form a minority government and deal with the economic issues of the country. As it turned out, losing would end up in winning only a short time later for the party. Just a few moments ago, the national leader of the Liberal Party, Lester Pearson, held a press conference in Ottawa. Here now is a portion of that conference from Ottawa. Well, I'd like to make a, a very brief statement at this time. I may, of course, have something more to say later, if not tonight, tomorrow. But on the uh, information which is now available to us, it is clear that the Tory government has been decisively rejected. Any responsible announcement of a future policy or, or views about what should be done on our part must uh, await final, uh, final returns. A man named John Turner would win in this election, beginning a decades-long career in Parliament that would see him not only serve as Justice Minister in the 1970s, but also briefly as Prime Minister in 1984. Against Mr. Chambers, the Liberals are running John Turner, a youthful lawyer trained in the University of British Columbia, at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and at the Sorbonne. The Liberals fondly regard him as Canada's Kennedy. He has that same gift for stirring enthusiasm in his workers and for making them work hard and love it. He sets the pace. This is a candidate's election and the Liberals are making great efforts to field good candidates. There's a saying here that Quebec moves in bulk and they have a feeling that Quebec is on the move. One man who did have a good night was Leonard Red Kelly, a 34-year-old man who was elected for the first time. Kelly may have been a politician in the House of Commons at this point, but that wouldn't stop him from his day job, playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And while his parliamentary career would only last a few years, Kelly would find himself in the Hockey Hall of Fame with eight Stanley Cup wins to his name. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the 1962 election, Tomorrow, we're looking at the 1963 election. 
If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Again, if you like, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. And I'd like to say thank you to all of my wonderful patrons. And if I mispronounce any names, I do apologize. Steve Pagan, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romain, Dr. Bob Turner, one anonymous person who I really appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, and Iris Gray. Information from Maclean's Dynasties and Interludes, Wikipedia, Biography, National Post, Ottawa Journal, and the Vancouver Sun. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.